the time of the service when we bring God's word, which we've been doing the whole time. I mean, that's our hope and, and prayer. That's why we build the service the way we do, is that there's so much uh, scripture in these, in these times together. That's because first and foremost, that's the one thing that God promises to always use. So he makes us a promise that his word won't return void. So other things that we can do on a Sunday morning might not produce much fruit, but if they're tied to God's word, it'll always produce fruit. But this is the time when we really drill in and look at a passage of scripture in particular and closely. And so we've been going through the book of Galatians. And this morning we're in Galatians chapter five, verses two through six. It's page 915. If you don't have a Bible, you could grab one of those hardback Bibles. It's there in front of you, hopefully in the pew. It'll definitely be helpful if you've got a copy of God's word open so you can follow along as, as we move along. Galatians 5, verses 2 through 6. And there's a kind of a bare bones outline on the back of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as, as we move along. Uh, one purpose of sermon introductions, some guys will, will have an introduction for a sermon, some won't, some of them use them for, for different, different reasons, but, but one purpose of sermon introductions, most guys would say, is, is to convince the people listening that the thing you're about to talk about is significant. That's the purpose of introductions for any public speaking, right? You're trying to convince the audience you should pay attention to this thing. It's important. Well, the, this passage, Galatians 5, 2 through 6, it comes ready-made for that. So like we're going to see, Paul says in this passage, if you don't listen to him here, so if we do the opposite of what he says in this passage, he says, Jesus will be of no advantage to you. That's the thing he says in this passage. So, so the thing he's trying to convince us of, if we don't believe it, if we get this thing wrong, then he says, Jesus will benefit you in no way. So if you get this thing wrong, Jesus won't pay for your sins. He won't intercede for you. He won't give his spirit for, for your transformation. You will get none of his benefits if we get this thing wrong. So as far as Jesus is concerned, you will be like a stranger to him. That's intense, but that's what this passage says. So in other words, get this thing right or miss out on Jesus. There's, there's no more serious consequence in the universe than that. So, so keeping that in mind, hear the word of the Lord, Galatians 5, 2 through 6. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, so, so how do we avoid what Paul mentions here? What is it you could do, on the flip side of it, that would sever you from Christ? Like verse 4 says, well, here it is. And this is the main point of the passage for us. If you're relying on your own efforts for God's ultimate approval, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's the main point of this passage. If you're relying on your own moral efforts for God's approval of you, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. And Paul builds that argument here with three points 
that lead to one conclusion. That's the way that we'll look at the passage. So the, the first point is, just to kind of preview it, the first point is you have to choose between your efforts or Christ's efforts. There's no middle ground. You can't have both. You got to pick one or the other. That's the first thing Paul show us. Second point, if you choose to rely on your own efforts, you have to be perfect, which is impossible. You probably know that. We'll be reminded of that in a minute. Third point, if you rely on your own efforts, then not only can you not do that because you have to be perfect, but, but you'll be rejecting the gift of the gospel and the gift giver, who is the Lord. And then finally, all that leads to this conclusion, therefore, accept the gift of the gospel. Instead of trying to work for your own good, for your standing in God's eyes, through your effort, accept the gift of the gospel in Christ. So, so here's the first point in the argument for us. You have to choose between your efforts or Christ's efforts. Again, there's, there's no middle ground. E either Jesus completely provides the righteousness you need for salvation, or he provides none of it. Now look again at how serious Paul is about this, how seriously he wants us to, to take his argument. Look at the way he starts with verse two. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you. That's the way he started. It's, it's the equivalent in, in Greek of Paul grabbing the Galatians by the shoulders and looking them at the, in the eye and saying, hey, listen to me. The thing I'm about to tell you is incredibly significant. That's what Paul is doing here. And again, here's his main message, verse two. To the Galatians, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Okay, so Paul's telling them if they pursue this idea of getting circumcised, having the male members of their household circumcised, then they won't receive any of Christ's righteousness. He says his work will be of no advantage to you. Okay, so, so what does circumcision have to do with someone not turning to Christ for his righteousness? Just get ready, we're gonna say the word circumcision a whole bunch, right? Probably only in church and with newborn babies does that happen, but here we are. But how's that work? What does circumcision have to do with someone not turning to Christ for his righteousness and, and trying to justify themselves? Well, we've talked about it several times throughout our sermon series here in Galatians, because it was part of the background here, what's going on around these churches in this region, Galatia. But Paul reminds us in verse four, here's the connection. Verse four, he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Not to be too gross, but Paul's leveraging this kind of clever imagery there. So you'll be cut off from Christ if you pursue circumcision. That's what he says here in verse four, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So Paul knows if the Galatian Christians get circumcised at this point, and we'll talk about why this is in a second, it's because they're getting circumcised as a good work to help them win God's favor. So it's not like the reason that most of us have our sons, if we have a son, have our sons get circumcised. It's, it's not about that. No, it's, it's because they're looking for that work to be a good work in God's eyes and win them approval with the Lord. So just to understand, Paul's not saying anything here about the inherent nature of circumcision, right? On its own, that, that medical procedure is not evil. So we know from Philippians 3 verse 5 that Paul himself was circumcised. More than that, we know from Acts 16.3 that Paul leads a young Gentile Christian named Timothy to get circumcised to, to help increase 
ease in ministry since he's going to be among the Jews. So it's not that circumcision on its own keeps someone from salvation. In fact, that's what Paul says explicitly down in verse 6. Jump down to the very end of our passage. Verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Okay, so that act in itself doesn't have any spiritual benefit or spiritual detraction one way or the other for circumcision or, or uncircumcision. No, the problem is in the way the Galatian Christians were being tempted to think about circumcision. The way the false teachers around them were telling them would happen, what would happen if they were circumcised or were not circumcised. And again, as verse 4 tells us, the false teachers were tempting them to think that circumcision was part of what justified them. Now that language, if you've been here for the sermon series in Galatians, or you probably know this anyway, but but that's courtroom language. So to be justified, that's the language of a judge pronouncing somebody innocent. So you get to the end of the court case, and whether in the particular judicial system it's the judge that says innocent or a jury, whoever it is that has that authority declares the defendant innocent. You're not guilty. That's what it means to be justified. And, and the way the word is used usually in the New Testament and in Paul's letters in particular, it's talking about the day Jesus returns and the pronouncement that he will make over every single human who has ever lived, which can go one of two ways, either innocent or guilty, which if you're here and you're not a Christian, a good thing to think about. So that event will happen. Jesus is coming back one day, could be this afternoon. He could come back at any point, and then all of us will be standing before the throne of God, and it'll be pronounced over us whether we're innocent in God's eyes or whether we're guilty in God's eyes. And of course, if somebody is guilty, they're sent into eternal judgment in hell. For those of us who are declared innocent, we're, we're welcomed into heaven. But see, the false gospel that was being preached around the Galatian churches said that part of the way a sinner gets that innocent judgment before God is through their own good works, their own moral effort. That's what these false teachers were saying. And the main good work they promoted was circumcision. So that's Paul's problem. That's why the Lord is declaring this to be a false gospel. It's, it's not that the Lord has a problem with circumcision. He has a problem with the idea that circumcision helps a sinner gain an innocent verdict on the day of God's judgment. Because the Bible's clear, there's only one way to get an innocent verdict from God, and that's through trusting in Jesus alone to provide us with his righteousness. Not our own righteousness, which is lacking. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. No, our only hope is for Jesus to provide us with his righteousness to get that innocent verdict. Flip a page over, if you've got a Bible open, look at chapter two, Verse 16, this is what Paul said there, because he's building in this letter, so we can look back to what's gone before. Chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified, declared innocent in God's sight. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, by good works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what he's saying is that innocent verdict, it can't come through our own good works. It doesn't come through us trying to do what the Lord wants us to do. 
No, it only comes through our connection to Jesus. So we understand the Bible makes clear Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness. And then on the cross, that was him not acting like a righteous person. That was him taking your place. That was him acting like you, taking the punishment that your sinful record and my sinful record deserved. So he lives a perfectly righteous life, and then he acts as if the complete opposite has happened because he's standing in our place, the place of sinners, and he suffers on the cross, dies, and is raised from the grave, and he's doing all that to pay for the sins of anybody that would ever trust in him. Of course, the way we access that isn't by trying to work hard and be good, clean ourselves up. No, it's by simply trusting in Christ alone. When we trust in Jesus that that work was for us, when we trust in that and believe those things, we're connected to Christ, and then we get his righteousness. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. But remember, the false teachers were saying it was faith in Christ plus some of our own good works that makes us right in God's eyes. That's what justifies us, they said. And Paul's point throughout the whole letter is that that version of justification is a false gospel that won't save anybody. Because as, as verse 2 makes clear, you have to pick. You can either be justified by Christ's righteousness or you can try to be justified by your righteousness, but, but you can't do both. Look at how clear Paul is on this point. Verse four, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So what he's saying is if you choose to be justified by the law, which just means by your own good works, by being a good person, by doing the right things, and you think that's how I'll win God's approval. If, if that's you, Paul says, if you're trying to be justified by the law, then you will be severed from Christ. You can't have both. So remember the illustration we've used before? It's like if you're eating supper with somebody and, and it's sort of like a fight to see who's gonna, who's gonna pay the bill. Well, that's how this works. So in terms of our salvation, let's see that as the bill. Either God will pay all of it through Christ or you have to pay all of it, but God doesn't split the check. That's the way the world likes to think about this. Yeah, I need Jesus maybe for part of this, but then I do part of it myself through my good works. No, God doesn't split the check. Either you can let Jesus pay for the whole thing or you're gonna have to pay for the whole thing, but, but you can't go half and half. Jesus is nobody's halfway savior. Jesus doesn't work that way. He's only a complete savior. So to, to try to enter even one good work into your justification, that person will be severed from Christ. That person has opted out of the gospel. For the person to try and have justification partly by Christ's efforts and, and partly by their own efforts, you might as well be trying to, to drive north and south at the same time. It's, it's impossible. So for the Galatians, they, they were considering making circumcision part of their justification. Okay, so the question for us is, what are we tempted to do that with? So it's, it's probably not that. So, so what are you tempted to make part of your justification? Make part of your standing in God's eyes where no God loves me because of this thing. Maybe it's the way that you love other people. So maybe you think, yeah, my care for others, that's part of my standing in God's eyes. That's part of what's made me close to the Lord. 
or maybe it's having good theology. So you assume that, that part of your right standing in God's eyes is that you think rightly about Scripture, and you've got all your doctrine lined up, and then maybe that makes you more righteous than somebody with, with less developed theology. Or maybe you've been, been influenced by a tradition that teaches that baptism is part of the way that sinners are made right in God's eyes. So, so you're tempted to think your obedience in baptism helped secure your status as God's child. None of that is true. None of that is true. And just think about those two track records. So when you're being tempted to think maybe my obedience is part of what's made me right in God's eyes, just think of those two track records. Which one have you seen come through more often? Because you have to pick one. It's either Jesus's righteousness or your own efforts. Which one have you seen come through more often? Or think about it this way. Who sinned more this past week, you or Jesus? Just to ask yourself that question. Anytime you're tempted to think, maybe it's my righteousness that's part of what's won me as standing in God's eyes. Just ask yourself that question. Who sinned more this past week, me or Jesus? Well, we want to go with Jesus' righteousness every time. So however that temptation comes, turn from that temptation. Don't separate yourself from Christ by thinking it's your efforts, even in part, that makes you right in God's eyes. For a person that does that, He's severing self from, himself from Christ. He's losing all the benefits. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So you have to choose between your efforts or Christ's efforts. And here's the major problem with choosing your own efforts. It's our second point. If you're relying on your own efforts, you have to be perfect. They have to be perfect efforts, which is impossible. Look at verse 3. Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So every person either has to choose Christ's righteousness or, or their own. There's no in-between. And, and the dagger for choosing our own is Paul tells us it has to be perfect righteousness, which makes sense if you think about it. If you know anything about the Lord, maybe if you just think about the God of the universe for a minute, he's perfect. God in himself is perfect perfect. And part of his perfection is he's just. He knows that sin is always wrong and it always has to be justly dealt with. This is Psalm chapter 5 verse 4. Evil may not dwell with you, O Lord. He's too good for that. He has to punish evil. Now again, Jesus's righteousness, it's the kind we need because it's perfect. That fits with who the Lord is. Jesus has a perfect righteousness. Okay, but what about our own righteousness and our own good works? Verse three again, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So Paul tells the Galatians, hey, if you reject Christ's perfect righteousness, then you have to bring your own perfect righteousness. So Paul means when he talks about keeping the whole law there in verse three, the person who's seeking to be declared righteous by obeying the law has to be perfectly righteous. They have to obey the law perfectly. It's the same thing we're taught in James chapter 2, verse 10. If you write in your Bible, you might want to write that next to this verse. Next to Galatians 5, 3, write James 2, 10. This is what James tells us there. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
So if your plan is to please God by being a good person, you have to be a perfect person. If your plan is to please God any other way than trust alone in Christ alone, then you have to do that perfectly. So, so what's it look like on the ground to keep the whole law like Paul talks about? Well, look down at verse 14. He summarizes the whole law for us. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, so to be self-justified, Paul makes clear that they won't just need to be circumcised. They'll also have to love the Lord and love everybody else perfectly. Every step of the way, they'll need to never lie, never get unrighteously angry, never gossip or lust or be selfish. They won't be able to sin in any of those ways ever. So, so for us, it's not just we need to be kind most of the time to help secure our standing in God's eyes. We'd have to be perfectly kind all the time. It's not just that we would have to get baptized, sort of have that picture of cleansing from sin. We'd actually have to be perfectly pure all the time, 100% of the time. It's not just that we'd have to have good theology. We could never believe a false thing about the Lord ever for even a second. Verse three, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. But sinners like us, we can't do that. You know that about yourself. I know that about myself. It's impossible. We're sinners. We fall short. Now, that, that doesn't mean that as Christians, we don't pursue righteousness. It's absolutely crucial as a Christian to want to please the Lord. In fact, it's one thing scripture gives us, a way to see the difference between somebody who just says they're a Christian and somebody who is actually a Christian is whether there's fruit of holiness in their life, whether they're actually trying to pursue the Lord. Paul makes that connection really clear in verse six. Look down in verse six. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, our love, it won't be perfect, right? We know that. But a real faith in Christ always produces love, even if it's imperfect. Love for God and, and love for others. In fact, James tells us in chapter 2 of his epistle, it's good works that make our invisible faith visible. So it's almost like the invisible hand of faith, because you can't see faith. So your trust in Christ, we can't see that. We can't measure that, right? It's invisible. But, but love for God and love for others is almost like that invisible hand of faith putting on a visible glove, where then you can see it in action. And that glove is love for the Lord and, and love for others. So, so that has to be there, but, but Paul makes sure to get the order right. It's faith alone in Christ that justifies, that creates a relationship with God, and then fruit comes from that. Love for others comes from that. But, but these false teachers had the order reversed. They said those good works had to come first to build that relationship with the Lord. And in that way, they were relying on those good works for their relationship with God. It's just like Paul told us back in chapter two, verse 10 of Galatians. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Paul knows for the person that's relying on the law, they will be cursed because none of us can keep it perfectly. None of us can be good enough. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, I wonder if you've thought about this before. 
So if you're not trusting in Christ to get his righteousness, then you're trusting in your own. But, but that righteousness, like Jesus, it has to be perfect. So the question for you is, do you think that you're doing that? Do you think that your righteousness is perfect? W- would you say that you've never gossiped or never been jealous or never been unkind, never done any of those things? Obviously, that's not our situation. None of us. There's nobody in this room that, that can fit that bill. Paul even points this out when it comes to the false teachers. Chapter 6, verse 13, he says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. No, we're all sinners, right? And that's why we need to be saved. We need salvation. We, we need to have our sins forgiven. You have to put your faith and confidence in Christ, believing that his life and death and, and resurrection are enough to make you right with God. So come talk to me, talk to one of the other elders here, one of the other church members, if you're interested in talking about that more, what it looks like to trust alone in Christ alone, to receive his his righteousness. Now for the Christians here, we, we know this already. We know we're sinners. We know we have to have Christ's righteousness because we can't produce it on our own. That's, that's why we've run to Jesus in faith, right? Knowing he's our only hope for righteousness in God's eyes. And because we have the spirit of God living inside of us, we're, we're grieved because of our sin, right? But there's this great built-in benefit to recognizing our sin. So if you're a Christian sitting here, if you're a member of this church, and you think, yeah, when I recognize my sin, that is only a bad experience for me. That's the most discouraging thing that happens during my day when I recognize my sin. And praise the Lord, it's good to feel the weight of our sin, to want to turn from it. But there's a built-in benefit to recognizing our sin. So, so think about it this way. I'm more forgetful than I used to be. Um, and I don't know, there were probably certain things where I was just forgetful anyway. But, but our kids, the younger kids in particular, they get bathed or take showers the same days every week. It's been like that for a thousand years. But yet, even until recently, I would be surprised that it was bath day. So Saturday is a bath day. And Marie would say that to me, and I would be surprised. And she would say, it's been like this for however long, 10 years. And I'd be surprised by that. So, so what I found is that I have to put reminders in my phone. I have to set an alarm. And so I've got an alarm. This is so sad, but this is reality. I have an alarm that goes off every Saturday at 2 o'clock, and it says, kids baths. And that's the way I remember I should be able to remember without the alarm. I don't. I've got to see that thing, right? Reminders are, are good for us. Well, the thing is, as Christians, we can understand is we can think about our sin that way. So anytime you sin, as a Christian, when you recognize your sin, that's like a reminder popping up on your phone that says you can't trust yourself. So put your full trust in Christ. That's good, isn't it? In that way, seeing our sin is good it's a good thing to get that reminder every time you sin think of it that way this is a reminder to me i can't trust in myself so i have to put all my trust in christ verse 3 i testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law so since you have to choose between your efforts or christ's efforts when it comes to justification and since your efforts would have to be perfect which is impossible then turn away from your efforts and trust in Christ. It's impossible to have perfect efforts, which is what you would need. You you can't get there. So trust in Christ. 
Okay, third point in Paul's argument, and then we'll get to the conclusion. Third point, if you rely on your own efforts, then you're rejecting the gift of the gospel and you're rejecting the gift giver, who is the Lord. Look at what Paul tells the Galatians in verse four. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So for the Galatians to pursue their own efforts as a way to be made righteous in God's eyes, that, that would mean they have fallen away from grace. Now that word, we hear that word a lot, right? But if you're not a believer in particular or haven't read the Bible much, you might wonder, okay, what exactly is that getting at? Well, grace just means a gift. So grace is something that's given to us that isn't deserved. We didn't do anything for it. It's just because of the giver's kindness. You get something undeserved. Again, it's a gift. So Paul told us early on in this letter, chapter 1, verse 6, tells us the gospel of Christ can be characterized by that word, grace. So chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So the fundamental difference between the real gospel and this fake gospel is that the real gospel is based on grace. It's a gift. It's not something that we have to work for. Listen to the, the bottom line reason why Paul says God saved him. What's the purpose why, why God saved any of us as Christians? Chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. So Paul's salvation, just like yours, was undeserved. It's just a, a gift. That's one of the main problems with the false gospel of justification by works. It negates the gracious nature of the gospel. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 21. And there Paul says this. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, so follow the logic here. Paul says, if we could justify ourselves by our own good works, if we could just be a good person and that would be enough to get us into heaven, well, then Jesus came for no purpose. It was a waste. He came to do something that we could do ourselves. But of course, that's not why Jesus came. He, he came to do something that we weren't able to do ourselves. But this is one of the worst parts about this false gospel of justification by works. It makes Jesus's work unnecessary. So it makes sense what Paul says in verse 4, doesn't it? He says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So for the Galatians to believe their obedience in getting circumcised helped make them right in God's eyes, that was the equivalent of them throwing the gift of Jesus back in God's face. It was them saying, we don't need this gift. We can do this on our own. That's what justification by works does. It leads to that kind of thing where Christ's coming was unnecessary. We didn't need it. So it's like throwing Christ back in God's face. It makes sense. Paul says those people have fallen away from grace. They're distancing themselves from the gift of the gospel, saying it's unnecessary. That's a good way for us to think about it as Christians, to frame it that way. So, so when you're tempted to act like or think like your relationship with God is built on your own efforts, just remember that that's like you throwing the gift of Christ back in the Lord's face, saying, we don't really need him. I don't really need him. This is on my shoulders. I can do this on my own. So, so when you've sinned in some way that, that you hoped you were past, and then you've confessed it to the Lord, but, but you're still feeling guilty about it before him, 
thinking you have to make up for that sin maybe somehow, instead of doing that, accept the gift of Jesus, that his righteousness has made you right in God's eyes. Imagine if, uh, if you had a friend who, who lost his home, and so you work out an arrangement where you find a place for him to stay. You find an apartment for him. And it, it's a lot of effort that you go to to get this apartment set up. And let's say that after work every day when you drive home, there's a lot of nights where you see your friend not sleeping in that apartment, but sleeping out on the road. That would, that would be a bummer. Not make much sense that you give him this gift and he doesn't take advantage of it. That's got to be the way that it seems to the Lord when we won't accept this gift of full forgiveness. We have this house to live in, the house of Christ's righteousness, but oftentimes we're, we're sleeping outside, acting like it's our own efforts that make us right before him. So we don't, we don't want to reject the gift and the gift giver. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now at this point, real quick, we should pause and we should recognize that the language of verse 4 is pretty terrifying. We talked about it in the introduction, but this is terrifying language. It's some of the most terrifying language, I think, in the entire Bible here in this passage, verse 4 in particular. So, so just to review, we're told here that for the one who believes this false gospel of faith plus works, that person is severing themselves from Christ. So think about Jesus like a life support machine. The person that believes in this false gospel is disconnecting themselves from life support. Or they're up in an airplane, and the person that believes this false gospel is jumping out of that plane. You are severing yourself from Christ. Someone can't ultimately believe a false gospel and be connected to Jesus. If, if they persist in that, on the day of judgment, Jesus will say, I never knew you, depart from me. That's why false gospels are such serious business, to turn away from and to trust the one true gospel. But, but here's what's really important to note when it comes to these terrifying words of verse 4. These warnings are given to the Galatian Christians. That's something, isn't it? The letter that's, that's sitting in your lap right now, it was written to Christians, not the non-Christian false teachers. It wasn't written to them. It was written to Christians. Listen to how Paul describes the recipients of that letter, Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So Paul believes the members of the Galatian churches are Christians. He believes Jesus paid for their sins. They'll be fully redeemed one day. They'll end up in heaven. Okay, but if that's the case, then why is Paul giving them these warnings? Have you ever thought about that? That's something, isn't it? Why does he give these warnings to Christians? If they're Christians, why is he warning them against being cut off from Jesus? Is he saying that Christians can lose their salvation? So you can trust in Christ, be a real Christian, and then lose it? No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul knows salvation's a package deal. God doesn't give part of it without giving the whole thing. He knows when God justifies somebody from their sins, he also gives them glorification, which is our final state before the Lord in heaven. So you don't get one without getting the other. Somebody can't become a Christian by being justified, but then not get to heaven. That's the kind of way Paul argues in Ephesians 1 verse 13. He says this, he says, in Christ, 
You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so this is a brand new Christian, then you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Okay, so the second somebody believes in the gospel, they're given the Holy Spirit, that spirit is a guarantee that they will one day end up in heaven. Christians can't lose their salvation. Listen to the way we say it in, uh, in our confession of faith, where we summarize scripture's teaching on this. We say, there is a special providence of God that watches over the Christian's welfare, and they are kept forever by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Or listen to the way Jesus says it. John chapter 10, verse 28. He says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So as a Christian, you can't perish because Jesus holds you in his hand and nothing can take you out. Praise the Lord, right? That is good news. So, so no, the Christian can't lose his salvation. To use the language of grace as a gift, God never takes the gifts back. Okay, so, so back to our question. If that's the case, then how come Paul gives us these warnings? If a Christian can't lose his salvation, then why is Paul warning the Galatian Christians that if they turn from the gospel, then they'll end up cut off from Christ and fallen away from his grace? Well, here it is. It's because warnings are one of the medicines God gives us in his word to keep us holding on to Jesus. It's one of the medicines that God gives us in his word to keep us holding on to Jesus. So you may have had a medical condition before where the doctor gives you multiple prescriptions. Those are always fun, right? Where you have two or three pills and you have to take this one at this time of day and sometimes this one is twice a day and all those things you have to keep track of, multiple prescriptions. Well, to keep us holding on to Christ, God gives us multiple prescriptions. So in his word, he gives us the medicine of encouragement and the medicine of promise and the medicine of reminders, but he also gives us the medicine of warning. But here's the great news for us as Christians. God knows that the medicine of warning will work. In other words, he knows that Christians will always heed the warning. We will always listen to the warning, at least ultimately. So think about it this way. If you know there's a bridge that's being taken down, and so there's a detour. So whereas you used to be able to cross this bridge, part of the bridge is no longer there. So they put up barriers and they have workers out there and signs and they're having you go around that bridge. Okay, if that's the case, do you have to convince your friend or your spouse to not drive through the barricade? You have to say, hey, 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 so not only are they gonna detour you around this, but listen, don't drive through that barricade. Don't go off that bridge. Don't drive over that bridge to your, to your death, no. None of us has to do that. Okay, we understand that we're going to heed the warning. We see the barricades, we see the workers, we see the signs. That's all we need to not drive over the edge of the bridge to our death. God understands the same thing. He knows that the warnings we have in scripture will do the same thing for us as Christians. We will listen to them. That's why he gives them to us. Look down at verse four again. For the Christian that turns away from the gospel, he says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So again, does that mean the Christian can lose his salvation? No. But does that mean that the Christian needs to heed these warnings that God gives us in his word? 
yes. So the upshot for us in terms of warnings as Christians is don't shy away from them. We don't have to try to explain them away and say, no, these aren't real warnings. No, take them seriously. Let them sober you. And most importantly, let those warnings lead you to a deeper trust in Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. He, he believes these warnings will work for the Galatians. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. So he believes these warnings. If these are true Christians I'm writing to, the Holy Spirit will take these warnings and produce fruit. These people will believe the one true gospel. And of course, our responsibility here today is to heed these warnings too. So, so that's the case Paul makes. That's the argument he builds here through the Holy Spirit. First of all, when it comes to your justification, you have to choose between your efforts or Christ's efforts. You can't have both. Second, if you go with your own efforts, you have to be perfect, which is impossible. Third, if you're relying on your own efforts, not only will it not work, but in the process, you'll be rejecting the gift of Christ and the gift giver who is the Lord. So, so all of this comes together into the conclusion of this passage, which is our final point. Therefore, accept the gift of righteousness that is Christ. Accept the gift of righteousness that is Christ. Don't take the view of the false teachers. Don't believe for a second that you're standing in God's eyes as his child, as ones whose sins are forgiven. Don't think for a second that comes through your own effort. No, accept the gift of of the righteousness of Christ, verse 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, so the false teachers were saying righteousness could be achieved in this life through good works, circumcision, obeying other parts of God's law, it could happen now. It was a present righteousness, they said. But look at what Paul says about our righteousness in God's eyes. The end of verse 5, he says, We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So the Christian isn't the one trying to prove himself to God by achieving perfect righteousness here. The Christian's the one who trusts in the future declaration that will be given to him. Not because of his work, but because of Jesus's work. We're waiting for the hope of righteousness. And the way we get connected to Christ to gain that righteousness isn't through working hard. Verse 5 tells us, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. It's by faith alone in Christ alone that we're connected to the Lord. And so Paul tells the Galatians in verse 6, when it comes to justification, Circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. Their circumcision or, or any other list of good works, that's not going to win them a relationship with the Lord. In fact, that kind of false gospel will, will make someone miss out on Jesus completely. What the gospel says is that it's in the person and work of Christ that God gives us the gift of righteousness. And all we have to do is through the Spirit by faith keep opening that present. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision 
nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this gift of righteousness. We're so thankful, Father, that, that you have given us a way to avoid your judgment. We know that if it was on our shoulders, we could never achieve that. But Father, we're so thankful that that what you're urging us to do from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is to turn away from trusting ourself and to put our full hope and confidence in the promised Savior, who is Christ. Father, we pray that our church would be marked by that sort of single vision. We pray, Father, that we'd be marked not as people that do this perfectly, because we understand we'll sin even in this, but by people who are scrapping and clawing and doing everything we can to be sure that Christ is the only one that can save us and that we know that. We're so thankful, Father, that he is a good and kind Savior to cover all of our sins when we trust in him alone. Take a few moments now to pray the Spirit would press these truths in on your heart. So take a few moments to do that silently and individually now.